This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, with a foreword by Angela Davis. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa is an ambitious masterwork of political economy, detailing the impact of slavery and colonialism on the history of international capitalism. In this classic book, Rodney makes the unflinching case that African maldevelopment is not a natural feature of geography, but a direct product of imperial extraction from the continent, a practice that continues up into the present. Meticulously researched, how Europe underdeveloped Africa remains a relevant study for understanding the so-called great divergence between Africa and Europe, just as it remains a prescient resource for grasping the multiplication of global inequality today. In this new edition, Angela Davis offers a striking foreword to the book, exploring its lasting contributions to a revolutionary and feminist practice of anti-imperialism. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney with a foreword by Angela Davis. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. Chicago completed its first round of municipal elections on February 26th, and the city's socialist and progressive city council candidates did shockingly well. And so today, I'm turning over my mic to Micah Utrecht, Jacobin's managing editor and the author of Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity from Verso Books. Micah will be interviewing Miles Camp Flassen from In These Times and Emma Tai of United Working Families. But first, I'm going to lay out a little more context. Four of the five candidates endorsed by the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America either won outright or advanced to the runoff election on April 2nd, leading to talk of a socialist caucus on city council. And other progressive candidates throughout the city knocked off corporate-friendly incumbents. It was some desperately needed good news in a city that's been battered by brutal austerity measures, rapid gentrification, privatization, and massive giveaways to corporations, all happily overseen for the last eight years by neoliberal Democrat extraordinaire, Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Indeed, Chicago has been a case study for neoliberal urban governance in recent decades, but it's also been a key site of resistance. The Chicago Teachers Union's 2012 strike planted a flag for democratic, militant unionism that fought for the city's entire working class and helped spark the current teacher strike wave. In the past six months, two different charter schools, as well as the University of Illinois Chicago graduate workers, have also gone on strike. And the 2014 murder of black teenager Laquan McDonald shot 16 times by a Chicago police officer, and the subsequent cover-up by the city's political class was a catalyzing moment for the city's racial justice organizations, which took to the streets and helped unseat the sitting state's attorney and police chief and pushed Rahm Emanuel himself to not run for a third mayoral term. 
Today, mayoral candidates Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot are competing for the progressive lane in their runoff. Both candidates have a mixed record when it comes to working-class issues in the city. But Preckwinkle is endorsed by much of the city's labor movement, including the CTU. Lightfoot, on the other hand, is currently being courted by some of the city's biggest corporate donors. And recently, she even suggested using some of the 50 schools that Rahm Emanuel closed to house police training academies, managing to somehow run afoul of the city's education justice movement and racial justice movement on two issues at the same time. Polling shows Lightfoot as the current favorite, but Preckwinkle is largely the choice of the city's organized progressive movement. What the April 2nd elections will bring is anyone's guess, but the success in the first round of elections in Chicago is a testament to how years of grassroots organizing and partnerships between labor and community groups on the one hand and socialists on the other can produce a sea change in urban politics. Okay, really quick before we get started, please support this podcast that you love and listen to at patreon.com slash the dig. We need those of you who can afford to contribute to do so, so we can provide this podcast for free to those who cannot. And plus, if you donate $10 or more, we will send you left-wing book swag. That's patreon.com slash the dig. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's guest host Micah Utrecht interviewing Miles Camp Flassen and Emma Tai. Camp Flassen is the web editor of In These Times and wrote a cover story for the magazine's March issue previewing the Chicago elections, as well as a piece for The Nation titled Socialists Win Big in Chicago. Tai is the executive director of United Working Families. UFW is an electoral organization created by some of the city's left unions and community organizations, including the Chicago Teachers Union and SEIU Healthcare Illinois Indiana, which endorsed a number of socialist and progressive city council candidates in the election. Emma Tai and Miles Camp Lassen, welcome to the dig. Thank, Thank you. you. So we just had a big election in this city. Uh, let's start with an overview of what's going on in Chicago beyond the electoral realm. What is the state of the city of Chicago in 2019? Well, I think that it's really fair to say that we're Chicago is a city on the brink. We have. Um, so many kind of intertwined crises right now facing the city and the residents, but at the same time, and you know, some of these crises are political um, in nature. Some of them are more have to do with realities of you know gun violence and endemic poverty. Um, some of them are financial. There's you know massive debt that the city owes, um, and these are really circling the city and are going to face the political leadership. But this moment, I think, also is one of really incredible opportunity and in the sense that we can change the way that uh, the way business is done in this city and kind of put working class residents in the city first um, for the first time in a long time. So there's been, you know, uh, rampant austerity measures uh, that have been carried out under Rahm Emanuel as well as daily before him. We've seen 
uh, abuse in the police department. We've seen really racist uh, approach to all kinds of things when it comes to investment. When you know we see public schools close down, public mental health clinics, um, and at the same time we're privatizing a lot of the assets and the services in the city. So um, it's a lot of bad stuff going on uh, in terms of the the outlook for how the political leadership we've had has approached the challenges. But uh, as we've seen from these election results, uh, the city is ready for a change. And there's a whole lot of new faces that are uh, representing the demands that social movements have put forward for many years in the city. Um, and they've really built this uh, moment up for through years of organizing. And I think now we're starting to see the fruits of that labor be born in the electoral realm and also through you know, legislation that's ready to go, really. Like if this new city council takes uh, its seat it's in May and we have a mayor who will be somewhat more responsive to these demands, we could see a real sea change in the terms of the how politics is done on issues from affordable housing to public education across the board. So I think it is really a great moment of opportunity while great challenge for Chicago. Yeah, I feel like we're kind of in... Um an existential crisis that has national ramifications of like around this question of like our city's playgrounds for the rich and wealthy and like predominantly white professional and corporate class or are there are they places where like working class communities of color can like build a life for themselves and I think that we're seeing kind of these two trajectories and these two possible answers to the question kind of reach their crescendo right under Emanuel and with his predecessors before him, tens of thousands of black families have been forced from the city because of violence, gentrification, unemployment, closed schools, austerity. And at the same time, there's this rise of social movements that are like seeking to take back governing power and to win governing power in elections. And so I think it really is like a turning point about whether the third largest city in the country is going to be able to remain a city like for working class people. New York and LA, the median home prices there are astronomical. There's no way that I could ever afford to live in New York or LA. Um, And Chicago, the median home prices aren't like that. But that's certainly not the plan that these luxury real estate condo developers have in mind for us. So we're going to talk about all that stuff, the election results, the social movements in the city that have really shaped the way that those elections have, the recent elections have played out. But we do, we do have to give the people a little bit of something about the madness <laughs> that has gone on in this city in terms of political corruption recently. Just three minutes about FBI wires on the city council, intrigue about shakedowns of Burger King owners, <laughs> uh, you know, trading political favors for uh, sexual stimulant drugs. I mean, there's there's been a lot of very entertaining stuff. I can't wait for the Netflix show that comes out about I just recent tell Chicago people politics. when I'm talking about Ed Burke, I'm just like, have you seen the movie Widows? It's kind of like that. <laughs> and Ed Burke, of course, is the, the longest serving. The racist Irish. Oh, character from <laughs> Widows. Also, <laughs> uh, the longest serving uh, city council member. Uh, who, can you say a bit about what he's been up to? <laughs> um, yeah, so um, he is about to be indicted. Uh, we don't really know when. He just won re-election. He's, um, well, let's just let's slow down. So you just said two things. He's about to be indicted by the FBI, and he just won this <laughs> and he just re-election. won re-election. And he's been alderman for fifty years. Fifty years, um, and was part of that sort of racist white voting block that gave Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago, 
hell um, in his first four years as mayor. So um, he was indicted for a shakedown of a Burger King. It was actually the same Burger King that Laquan McDonald was shot outside. So um, and Laquan McDonald, the black teenager who was shot 16 times yeah. uh, by CPD officer Jason Van Dyke. Yeah, which again, I think it's just a real, it just such, tells such a clarifying story. I think you've got a white alderman of an overwhelmingly Latinx poor and working class ward shaking down um, folks for $10,000 for um, a zoning change on a Burger King that was the site of where an unarmed black teenager was shot by the Chicago Police Department. I mean, if that isn't like the crisis of the Chicago like political establishment, I mean, it just sort of tells you culmination of like how they have been treating poor working class and I color. think, you know, as, as I was saying, this guy is a defendant in a federal corruption case by the FBI. Uh, this is unheard of, really. I mean, we've seen a lot of wild things in terms of Chicago politics and corruption, but this is um, unparalleled. And the uh, it expands out into a lot of other different areas. There's, you know, what I was saying earlier is that we're, we, do, we still don't know where one of the aldermen is. This guy, Danny Solis, the alderman <laughs> of actually the ward we're in right now, 25. We, we're on Danny watch. It's like day 35 or something. I don't know. It's uh, maybe more. Maybe more. He's been he's he's been on the M- lamb. He's on the lamb. He's been MIA since uh, the news came out that he was actually wearing a wire for the FBI recording his conversations with Ed Burke because of a whole series of crimes he had been involved with, which included Viagra, as you mentioned before. Um, also, like he's Masa- trading trading uh, Viagra for political favors, basically. But yeah. Viagra and suggestions about like massage parlors disgusting yes yeah massage parlors where they're doing more than massaging uh and so he's uh he's missing right now There's my favorite you just kind of say real quickly my favorite little anecdote of that story is that on on the tapes that the fbi heard about uh solis he's saying to his friend yeah you know ever since obamacare the price of viagra has just gone through the roof <laughs> so he had to trade political deals in order to get his viagra because apparently his $120,000 salary as an alderman he couldn't he couldn't afford it exactly so i think you know these are just some uh, examples of the type of gross political corruption that has defined the political class in the city for a very long time. And sadly, you know, it means that that's what people think of when they hear Chicago politics is like this rampant corruption and nepotism and patronage and everything that has been uh, trademarks of the Chicago machine for many years. Um, And so when people talk about this, the new face of Chicago politics, I don't even think it's necessarily that people are running as reformers. It's just they are not connected to this history of political gamemanship that has been going on for for so long and represent something different and generally these are candidates who are uh people like rosana rodriguez in the 33rd ward we can talk more about who comes directly out of social movement organizing and is running for office in order to you know be a representative of the same social movements that helped to recruit her to run that's very different from like an ed burke clinging on to power for 50 years shaking down burger kings it's like such a clear contrast of an approach to uh, electoral politics. And that's what we are seeing this, uh, this cycle. I think we should just be clear that like the combined effect. So I've been spending the most time in the 20th ward on the South side um, where there's also an alderman um, who's about to go to jail on corruption charges. And so it's actually, it's an open seat. He's not running for reelection. And, you know, we can talk about that race in a second, but one of the things that I've been really struck by is the last three aldermen in that ward have all, been convicted and served time for corruption charges. And I think the cumulative effect of that with folks is that it just so dramatically lowers their expectations of like 
what this is, what this could be, right? Like you knock on a, on a door on the 20th floor and they're like, man, as long as she doesn't go to jail, great. You know? And it's like, there's no, that's like the ceiling of what folks can expect is not to get caught getting like a suitcase of cash or like prescription drugs off the market. There's no, um, and so I think part of like the work that we've tried to do and are trying to do is about raising expectations that actually you, you could and should expect more of your public servants and elected officials. Yeah. So on that topic, let's just give us a general overview besides the corruption fireworks that have been happening lately. What took place in this recent round of elections and, and what are we looking forward to in the city's runoff? Um, in the both the aldermanic, the, the city council and mayoral races, you have to win 50% plus one in order to win the election. And if you don't win that in the first round, then you get a runoff election. So we just had the uh, the first round of elections and we're now uh, moving towards the runoff. So I wrote an article for Jacobin the night after the elections it was called uh, A Good Night for Chicago Socialists, which is part of the story that Democratic Socialists of America endorsed candidates won. Uh, but also there was a broader progressive wave in these elections. So can you both give us an overview of what took place in the first round of elections and what's next? Sure. So um, like you said, I think that um, Chicago is unique in the sense that there's not just DSA, but sort of a broader like left labor movement. There are like a number of working class mass-based institutions um, that have like a very clear left politics. Um, And I think that that um, has been translated increasingly into electoral victories. So um, in the February general election, you know, you had working families. um, We early endorsed eight candidates, seven of them either won outright or made it to a runoff. Um, And then we had another endorsed candidate who's also in the runoff. So we had eight folks advance um, all of them, not all of them, but many of them also got the DSA endorsement. Um, And um, I mean, it was a good night. We have never done that much that early um, with that much success. And I think particularly with like that much of, I think a correct emphasis on making sure um, that like working class folks, women, people of color um, are not just the candidates, but are also kind of helming those campaigns and building the organizations that they come from. Yeah. And just to give uh, some detail on some of these candidates uh, in the uh, 49th Ward. It was a really incredible race where Maria Haddon won uh, against an incumbent named Joe Moore. And Joe Moore, it's interesting because Joe Moore first got into office in 91 and he ran as a reformer and he ran as an anti-machine candidate. Um, and he did have take some votes against then Mayor Daley. But once Rahm Manuel came into office in 2011, he just jumped in line and he actually has a nearly 100% voting record with Emmanuel. Um, and he did things like he actually offered to uh, help spin the Laquan McDonald murder story to take some of the heat off of the uh, city hall under Emmanuel after that news came out. So he had been a real ally to Emmanuel and Maria Haddon, very strong progressive. She was on the board of this organization, uh, Black Youth Project 100, that was at the forefront of a lot of the protests over Laquan McDonald's murder. Um, she worked on participatory budgeting issues for almost, a, for I think, over a decade um, and went very well known in the community. And she ran a she ran a campaign that was like almost 20 months long. She ran. She's been running for, uh, you know, since last year, uh, over a year ago. So she was able to defeat Joe Moore in the first round, which is a really incredible 
uh, defeat of an incumbent. So that's just one example. Also, Daniel Espada won in the first ward against Joe Moreno, this incumbent who took more money from property development companies than anyone else on city council, uh, overseen massive gentrification in his ward, which covers uh, neighborhoods like Logan Square and Wicker Park, where there's been these huge luxury developments that have gone up. Meanwhile, mass displacement of poor communities of color, Latinx families, black families that live in the ward. So Daniel Espada run with, uh, he ran with the support of a number of progressive groups. He was able to oust Moreno in the first round. And then when it comes to these runoffs, uh, as I mentioned before, Rosana Rodriguez is running in the 33rd ward against Deb Mel, who her father was alderman for 38 years. She was basically handed the seat then. She just missed getting into a runoff election four years ago. So she's a very vulnerable incumbent. And she's been very close to real estate as well. Um, in the um, 20th Ward, as you mentioned, Emma Jeanette Taylor is uh, running She in, in the runoff, and she was endorsed by a number of progressive groups, including Chicago Teachers Union, as well as UWF. Um, Andre Vasquez in the 40th Ward is taking on Pat O'Connor, the incumbent there, who's been on city hall or been on city council forever. I forget how many years. Um, so uh, that's just some example of some of the races you can fill in others. Yeah, I mean, I just think that one of the things that I was really struck by um, in this cycle is um, I think that we've all seen for a while the need to act as a, pol- a real political party with a sort of clear political orientation and like a clear set of candidates who come from the ranks of those movements and organizations. And I feel like we... Um, built that out way more in this cycle than we ever have in the past. So I was working on the mail program for Jeanette Taylor in the 20th Ward. Jeanette, um, you know, as a black parent and a grandmother who um, sort of most famously led a month-long hunger strike to keep a black open enrollment public high school um, in a neighborhood called Washington Park open. It's called Diet High School. Um, and it's just, I mean, one, it's just amazing to work for someone who you have pictures of them in struggle that you can then put in campaign literature. And it just shows, I think a real difference of when you like what happens when you recruit candidates who actually come from kind of the rank and file of movement struggle. Um, I don't, I think she'll be the first city council person who would, gone on a hunger strike. Yeah. To- I mean, it's amazing. And that, and that those pictures, you can actually see, you can see a picture of her sitting um, with some of the other hunger strikers in front of a We Are Diet banner that's being held by Maria Haddon, right? And it was just like a really clear illustration of like what it means to run like a slate that shares the same politics and has been through those struggles together. Um, and that was one of the, I think, one neatest other- little things that yeah. I saw. And one other race I just should um, mention because I already brought up Mr. Solis, who's on the lam, is right here in the 25th Ward. We have Byron Sigcho Lopez, who's running uh, for alderman. He's in the runoff election. He's from uh, executive director of a group called Pilsen Alliance that does a lot of work around anti-gentrification organizing and immigrant rights protection. So just another example of the kind of social movement candidates we're seeing this cycle. And just to give an overview, because I know a lot of listeners will be interested in what happened with the DSA specifically. There were five DSA-endorsed candidates for city council. One of them won outright Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who is also a UWF-endorsed candidate. Uh, won overwhelmingly, won by 20 points uh, in the 35th Ward. And he, he was an incumbent in city council, so is already a uh, socialist member of city council. Of the other four candidates who were endorsed, three of the four of them went into runoffs. Uh, and all three of them were in the first place. Uh, Byron Sigcho Lopez, who you mentioned, Jeanette uh, Taylor, and Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. Uh, and then since 
the runoff happened, we also endorsed a, a fourth uh, candidate in the runoff, uh, Andre Vasquez. So I think if you had told someone, you know, four or five years ago that that we could have uh, five, six people who openly identify as socialists or are members of a socialist organization on the city, Chicago City Council, they would find that astonishing. Uh, not to mention the broader progressive wave that we saw in this election. So let's talk a little bit about what led us here. Chicago is a city, of course, that uh, within the last few years has become associated with a really vibrant working class movement here around a whole bunch of issues uh, around the Chicago Teachers Union's strikes in 2012 and in 2016. There have been recent charter school strikes here. They already mentioned the diet hunger strike that Jeanette Taylor participated in, which was a hunger strike to reopen a uh, school on the south side uh, in a, a Bronzeville, uh, sort of heart of traditionally black Chicago. Of course, the murder of Laquan McDonald by CPD officer Jason Van Dyke uh, and the whole movement that sprung up around that. Um, so can both of you talk about how those fights have transformed the city's politics and how they have helped produce the election results that we recently seen? I think it's really important to spotlight the work of black youth in this city that have been organizing against police violence lately. I mean, the since the Laquan McDonald tape came out, um, there have just been massive protests across the city. Um, and as soon as the tape was released, uh, there was just mass outrage and explosion of protest that has now really channeled into this political moment uh, of demanding change. As Emma said, there is this infrastructure of a labor left organizations across the city. UWF has been incredibly important in terms of uh, recruiting and training candidates. And that has been an integral part of creating this political moment. But that injection of energy, I think, brought by the organize, organizing of black youth in groups like BYP 100 and Asada's Daughters uh, was uh, incredibly important. And one anecdote I tell in my in these times piece about the um, the what, what brought us to this moment, as you uh, asked, Micah, is that at the victory party for Kim Fox, who is the new state's attorney, um, she. Uh, beat an incumbent named Anita Alvarez. And Anita Alvarez had been very implicated in the Quan McDonald video cover-up. Kim Fox ran on a pretty radical platform at the time of decarceration, of criminal justice reform. And at her victory party, an activist with um, BYP jumped on the stage and was yelling, uh, two down, one to go. And that was a referencing... Anita Alvarez, who had just lost to Kim Fox, and Gary McCarthy, the superintendent of the Chicago police, who had been fired in the wake of the Laquan McDonald fallout. And the one left was Rahm Emanuel. And of course, what we saw now is because of the mass organizing across the city by groups that like the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union, working on uh, funding public education, groups working around affordable housing like the Lift the Ban Coalition, immigrants' rights groups like OCAD, Mahente, and of course, police accountability activists. Rahm Manuel was facing dismal approval ratings and wasn't able to mount a run for office and decided not to run. And so th this was all the creation of, you know, years of work, but was incredibly, incredibly important role was that of the black youth organizing around police accountability. And we, yeah, we didn't mention that Rahm Emanuel decided not to run previously uh this is a massive victory of 
social movements. I mean, this is somebody who is seen as one of the, the key power players in the Democratic Party and really represents this neoliberal turn of that party. And my assumption was that he thought that he, that he would stick around as mayor for a while and then move on to, I don't know, Senate or eventually try to run for president or something like that. Instead, his name has been just totally dragged through the mud and associated with austerity and racism and the tale of the two cities rhetoric and attacks on unions and all of that stuff. And so uh, at a time when the Democratic Party is facing these challenges nationally from people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it's pretty fitting that in Chicago, the voters and the social movements of the city would kind of uh, indirectly give Rahm Emanuel the boot. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right that the that Rahm Emanuel's decision not to run again, the fact that we have two black women who sort of, whatever their faults, knocked a daily out of the runoff election. And this is Tony Breckwinkle um, and Lori Lightfoot, the two yeah. challengers going into the runoff. Yep, and they knocked Bill Daly, who was formerly Obama's chief of staff, um, out of the runoff election, um, even after even after Ken Griffin, the richest man in Illinois, had given him $2 million or um, some mind-boggling amount of money. Um, I really do try to keep in mind every day that like we stand on the shoulders of primarily black women who have done this work and Karen Lewis um, and her caucuses takeover of the Chicago teachers union in 2010, Stacey Davis Gates, who was the political director who kind of recruited me into this work is the chair of United working families party is now the vice president of the Chicago teachers union. Um, Erica Bland, who is now the political director here who kind of shepherded UWF through a lot of, the risks that this organization took in 2015, which the wins and the losses, like they didn't match up as well as they did for 2019, but those losses and those risks set the stage and sort of like planted the seed for what we're starting to reap now, Um, right? Like Rosanna Rodriguez was recruited by an organization whose volunteer base and whose membership came out of Tim Megan's run for 33rd Ward Alderman in 2015. Um, Tim Megan was a history teacher on the North side, a socialist who's kind of the first one to take on Deb Mel and he himself ran because of he was inspired by the CTU strike um, and the school closings that followed right so this is all part of sort of like a longer arc of history about our you know people of color and women of color led movements getting the power and marshalling the people and the money and the resources required to actually wrest governing power out of the hands of the Rahm Emanuel's of the world. Emma, you mentioned earlier, and Miles as well, that, of course, there are these DSA candidates who either won or are in a good position for winning in the upcoming runoff election. But DSA is, has not had the victories that it's had alone or in a vacuum. They've partnered with organizations that are uh, from the left wing of the city's labor and community, labor movement and community organizations. And that is sort of what's more unique about Chicago than anything, I think, is that there has been a willingness on the part of the labor movement and community organizations in the city to partner with people who call themselves socialists openly. Like most of uh, the candidates that the DSA endorsed were also endorsed by UWF. And there's not a shying away from those kind of radical left wing politics that you usually associate organized labor 
with shying away from. So can you talk about that dynamic uh, with UWF and and how it's come to uh, be willing to embrace those kind of more uh, robust left-wing politics? I think it's out of, I mean, we need each other, right? It's just the reality is that at least, in, I've never done this work anywhere else, but at least in Chicago, politics is an enormously resource-intensive undertaking. I mean, this cycle is going to cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, all you think about 50 city council seats, X number of challengers in each of those seats, 14 mayoral candidates in February, um, two now, um, each with, you know, millions of dollars in their campaign chest. I mean, this is just, this is no easy task, right? And there's a reason why, um, you know, the corporate elites and the Rahm Emanuel's of the world um, fight so hard to hang on to it, right? Because they're the few and we're the many and they need to outlay that kind of money to hang on to the power that, you know, the public sector has and to marshal it towards austerity. And so if we are going to take that back, we need each other. Um, And if we're going to take it back, um, we need to do so with a vision that is left and aspirational and populist um, and unapologetic about it because anything less than that What's the point? Well, the, I agree uh, as a <laughs> ma- editor of a socialist magazine, but I know that there are a lot of uh, labor leaders in cities like Chicago around the country who would not agree with that and who would not be down to endorse people who are proclaiming themselves very proudly as socialists. And yeah. And that, I America. mean, that risk aversion is completely rational. I mean, labor has been browbeaten by these folks for years and years and years. I am like sympathetic to that impulse to kind of like hunker down and play it safe and do what and do what the experts say to do, endorse the lesser of two evils. And sometimes and folks around the UWF table, they have to do it sometimes, right? Like SEIU had to endorse JB Pritzker, who's the billionaire Democrat now governor, um, in what was the most expensive gubernatorial election in the United States history, um, because they represent state workers who were getting killed under Bruce Rauner, that's fine. That's the role that they have to play. And what we are doing is something different. And I just feel very, frankly, like lucky and fortunate to be able to sit at a table with folks who like are able to walk on both legs. We should also just say that there is, you know, the, the, the UWF is anchored by SEIU, Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, and the Chicago Teachers Union, as well as some other progressive unions in the city, but that is their 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 willingness to create an organization like UWF that is willing to make those endorsements and and and, and work with uh, open socialists is also the result of the left wing politics of the people who run CTU and HCII and UWF. Right there is a a you know within the CTU, for example, in 2010, a left leadership took over that union, and that that is why we are at this point today is that left leaders took over uh, unions in the case of HCII have long been uh, uh, the head of those unions and people with left politics, uh, broad left politics uh, are in the, at the head of those institutions. And so they're, they're not afraid of words like socialism, right? I think it's also on a political level, it's very helpful that DSA endorsed candidates did very well and that, you know, it doesn't seem like, a association with socialism or with radical politics is going to be uh, an issue for people running for aldermen. I mean, Carlos Rosa won by 20 points 
by and he beat a challenger who was funded by many of the same donors that funded Rahm Emanuel um, and the same real estate interests that are threatened by the type of policies he's been pushing. And Daniel Espada, another DSA member, as I mentioned, won outright. And a lot of these challengers are in the in the lead that have been endorsed by DSA. So I think it's it's helpful to see that this is not um, a political uh you know, problem for candidates right now, or at least we haven't seen that happen. So running away from the label doesn't, isn't a rational political decision when you see that the same people that are endorsed by DSA are the ones in the lead in their elections. And from my observation, I was most in contact with the Carlos Rosa and Rosana Rodriguez campaigns. You went to those campaign offices, and I think this is true for other city council candidates endorsed by DSA as well. You would see DSA people running the campaigns in some cases, certainly for someone like Carlos, almost entirely DSA members who were there on the doors. Uh, So the socialist organizations didn't just put their stamp of approval on these people, but actually showed up in very large numbers. It's different in other places. For example, Jeanette Taylor has other, you know, there are DSA members showing up, but there are also people from, uh, I'm sure, UWF and other community organizations. So it's not DSA alone, but in some of these races... People's Action, yeah. there's other, a number of other groups. Yeah. But in some of these races, DSA did actually show up in very large numbers to be the ones to knock on the doors and, and uh, hand out lit and all of that stuff. So let's talk about the mayoral race. As you mentioned... Well, first, why don't you lay out what, what the mayoral race looked like pre the first round of elections... And then explain your thoughts on the two candidates who have uh, ended up in uh, the runoff, uh, the April runoff. I don't even know the total number of candidates that ended up being on the ballot. I think there were 14, ultimately, which is massive, obviously. And many of those candidates didn't break a few percentage points. So it's not. But that said, even the ones who ended up in the runoff didn't break 20%. So there was no clear, even though there were obviously two front runners that are now in the runoff election, there was no uh, single candidate who amassed, uh, uh, you know, an impressive amount of support. Everybody got pretty meager support. Um, That said, we avoided what many people had feared, many people on the left had feared, which was uh, the specter of another daily mayorship. And Bill Daly, who was... Obama's commerce secretary, longtime businessman. Emma mentioned the support of Ken Griffin, $2 million. He was clearly business, the business class's preferred candidate. Uh, and he didn't make it to the runoff. He got in third and he was bested by uh, two black women, as Emma said, uh, Lori Lightfoot and Tony Preckwinkle. Some of the other candidates in the lower tiers who didn't make it, just to give a sense of some of these people, um, the aforementioned Gary McCarthy, who had been fired by Emanuel, who's the former police superintendent, he was running, weirdly tried to embrace some progressive campaign talking points during the campaign, but uh, people saw him, I think, rightly as the leader of the CPD, which is known for horrendous abuses. So he didn't make it in. Um, Gary Chico and Paul Vallis, who had both been involved in running CPS, the Chicago Public School System, uh, both of them were running on more moderate platforms as well. Uh, there was a candidate who was seen as the more left challenger named Amara Enya. She had the support of 
people like Chance the Rapper and Kanye West. Um, she, though, was not able to amass support from a lot of the labor and progressive groups that have been more influential in terms of turning people out to the doors. Um, she also did not make the runoff. So uh, Tony Preckwinkle is the president of the Cook County Board. She was a former alderman of the 4th Ward for a long time, which represent, represented Hyde Park. Um, she has kind of a mixed record in terms of her progressive credentials, but overall is uh, would represent a sea change from the Rahm Manuel uh, administration. And then Lori Lightfoot, who there's less information about because she's never held public office before, but she ran the police board under Emanuel. Uh, she had worked in the daily administration before, but mainly she had been a prosecutor and a, a corporate lawyer. So she doesn't have a long public record, we are definitely seeing some dynamics shape up in the runoff in terms of where um, different demog- different you know, uh, forces in the city are aligning themselves, whether it's the business class or the uh, more progressive um, organizations. And there's a strong difference between these candidates in that Preckwinkle, for whatever her mixed record is, has been endorsed by organizations like the Chicago Teachers Union. And so I think the hope of many people is who even people who are sober about her and her record is that well at least she is going to feel like she has to govern in a way that that pleases you know the most progressive large forces in the city like the Chicago Teachers Union. Of course and they're the ones that are funding her campaign. I mean that's the reason that she made the runoff and so she will I mean there's a lot of talk of course about movement governance and accountability but I think there's no doubt that Tony Preckwinkle would be answering to a different you know, group, and once she's in office, that helped to get her elected, and that is the most progressive forces in the city. And she has come around and embraced a really expansive progressive platform. Everything from rent control to removing carve outs in the sanctuary city ordinance, which is ways that ICE can get around our sanctuary city laws here in Illinois. We saw her at the Bernie rally the other day. Well, she Tony, was out there in the crowd. Tony Brackwinkle was, uh, was 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 feeling the burn. And she also, uh, just today, she was out of the picket line for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which is uh, on strike right now, and was railing against the billionaire class. So I think that maybe some of that Bernie shine is um, rubbing off on her. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, though, it's interesting to see where they where they succeeded because Lori Lightfoot won largely in the um, in the lakefront and in these uh, white, more wealthy neighborhoods on the north side, whereas Tony Preckwinkle had most of her success on the south side along the uh, lakeshore. So two very different demographics. Obviously, Chicago is an incredibly segregated city thanks to a long racist history of redlining and racist mortgage lending and so and disinvestment and so forth. And Lori Lightfoot is running as the reformer candidate. And oddly, this mayoral race became a referendum on corruption in light of the Ed Burke charges that came out. And Tony Preckwinkle was seen as the closest to Ed Burke. And so she was hit again and again for her connections to Ed Burke and, you know, shady figures. Whereas, you know, now what's coming out is Lori Lightfoot is, uh, as a reformer candidate, is being endorsed by some fairly shady figures herself. Right. I think the lesson of Lori Lightfoot is that good government isn't the same thing as good politics. Exactly. And so some of these people like Nick Spazzato, who's a um, alderman who went on the Tucker Carlson show and railed against illegals and said he didn't believe in sanctuary cities, um, is endorsing Lori Lightfoot. Um, Willie Wilson, who, you know, said he supported Trump and so were Republicans. 
um, is backing her. She also, it's interesting because her campaign slogan is bring in the light. And a WBZ analysis showed that she just got $40,000 from Change Chicago, which is itself a dark money group that is funded by wealthy uh, donors, and she also just got the support of John Canning, who's a um, was a big time backer of Rahm Emanuel and Bruce Rauner. So, uh, and as a corporate lawyer, she it's come out she's worked for Big Tobacco and Big Pharma. She's been slammed by police justice advocates in the city for her role as a prosecutor as well. And she was once um, reprimanded by a federal magistrate for a botched extradition case. So her record, as people are finding out more about Lori Lightfoot, I think some of that. Um, her progressive credentials are being thrown into a question in, uh, in a way that Preckwinkles were before, but are extremely serious, I think, for people that want to see a progressive mayorship. Yeah, so my, I, I do have a few things to say about the marriage race. So my um, partner is a, um, he's on the executive board of the Chicago Teachers Union, and they, he was at the House of Delegates meeting that they had the other day. One of the members uh, spoke on the floor, and it's a member who is, you know, tends to be very skeptical of investment in electoral politics and engagement in electoral politics. Basically, said the forces of evil are aligning against Tony Preckwinkle. So I'm super glad we endorsed her. <laughs> um, and it's just it's sort of you know, tell me who you walk with, and I'll tell you who you are, right? I think the other thing about the mayor's race that, um, Miles, what you're saying caused me to reflect is that I sort of fundamentally think that what elected officials do not to get like all math on folks is kind of like vectors, right? And so our project is to be a big enough vector um, to push them in the direction that we want to go. And, you know, you can never do it with Rahm Emanuel because his biggest vector was his incredible fundraising prowess from New York and LA and tech. And, you know, you just never had a way to do it. Right. And I think that what we're kind of seeing in the mayor's race is that we are starting to be like a big enough vector that folks are blowing our way. And that's just an exciting development that we haven't seen in the past eight years. Um, And then I think the last thing that, you know, I add on the mayor's race is that one of the things that, I've just been thinking about, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, and this, maybe this is just my parochialism, but I, I do think that what happens in Chicago has national ramifications. And I think that one of the lessons for the left doesn't succeed here without a black left and without a poor left. And in Chicago, because of institutional racism and segregation and generations of disinvestment, um, those are kind of the like the poorest communities are the communities that are the most black in Chicago. And those are places that um, a socially conservative Republican named Willie Wilson won. And that's a, that's a problem for us. Um, And I think that even as we had like a very good night overall, I'm in February and I'm expecting us to like see some positive results in April. Like there is still significant work for the left labor movement in Chicago to do to really build a political movement that is, that is includes and is reflective of and is led by working class Black and Latinx folks. And if we aren't able to do that, we will not be successful. We should mention, since you're bringing up some of the downsides of the recent elections, we've talked mostly about the positives, but it wasn't all positive. In the 45th Ward, John Arena, who was a very steadfast voice against Rahm Emanuel and his agenda, uh, did lose his uh, race after taking some pretty courageous stances in favor of building more affordable housing in his ward, which is on the far northwest side of the city, the kind of area that you would typically associate with sort of white reactionary politics, sort of like uh, lots of cops and firefighters and uh, those kind of uh, white working class public sector workers. He 
took a lot of blows because he was willing to stand for things like more affordable housing and, and he lost the election largely over that. Yeah, I think it's a very troubling development and it raises the question of, you know, I I think that it's right that our model is to be electing folks who can act as um, a left pole in the discourse, who can shift things leftwards, who can advocate for North Star positions and change people's expectations of what city government and state government can do. And some people can do that more safely than others. I think that's very true. I just want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of uh, Emma, you're talking about Chicago as being an example for the rest of the country. And I think that that is one element of this election that has been a little bit glossed over, but is incredibly important in terms of what we're seeing on a national level is a rejection of this corporate minded third way politics that Rahm Emanuel in so many ways represents. I mean, this is a this is a guy who came out. He was an investment banker, of course, and raised tons of money. But he really got to start uh, in the Clinton administration. And he was known as the architect of NAFTA. Uh, he worked on the crime bill, worked on welfare reform. And then under Obama, as, as his chief of staff, pushed him to not do health care reform, to stay away from immigrant protections. He's called immigration the third rail of American politics. So really at the crux of all of these inflection points where the Democratic Party has taken this more corporate-minded pathway, Rahm Emanuel has been a central player. And so his role in Chicago, and he brought that to City Hall here in Chicago, and voters are saying, hell no, they don't want to see that continue. And we're seeing that, I think, on the national level as well, where the embrace of politicians like Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that are willing to embrace these much more bold and transformative programs and outrightly say we need to tax the rich, we need to stop these privatization deals. You know, right before he left office, Rahm Emanuel put down a $2 billion offer to Amazon, just a corporate giveaway. And that's the famous deal where Amazon executive emailed Rahm about the deal and and being very happy with the deal that Ram had offered and Ram responded who's your daddy yeah exactly that was the the who's your daddy email uh you know, just you, as an indicative indicative of how willing he is to give the whole city away to a company like Amazon and what uh, Karen Lewis the uh great uh former head of the Chicago Teachers Union once said was that she called him the murder mayor and she wasn't just referring to the murder rate in the city which is incredibly high although the violence is extremely segregated in poor communities of color she talked about him murdering public jobs and murdering you know the public education in the city he's just gone he closed down half the city's mental health clinics in one fell swoop he oversaw the biggest single closure of public schools at that time in u.s history when he shut down 50 public schools. So this is not somebody who has just been kind of running the machine while he's been in office. He has been very clear and had an ideological program. He's tried to put down the throats of the residents of the city. And that is the referendum, I think, that this election was about. And it's pretty clear, despite, you know, some of these losses, like the arena loss in 45, voters are clearly saying they don't want what Emmanuel has been offering, and neither do they want what his rubber stamp city council has been approving you mentioned karen lewis's murder mayor rhetoric about Rahm Emanuel. she of course was all set to run for mayor of city of chicago in 2015 but had to back out after she uh, discovered she had a brain tumor and being reminded of that murder mayor rhetoric and how useful that would have been to hear out on the campaign trail i'm, I'm reminded just as we on the left often say that bernie would have won i think karen would have won 
Karen Lewis could have been the Chicago mayor that we and we, the city might have looked a lot different over the last uh, four years. But of course, we'll never know. Yeah, I mean, that comment earlier about um, really how do we invest in building, you know, a black left that is capable of winning governing power and a poor left that is winning about winning governing, winning governing power comes from, you know, my reflection of before I started at United Working Families, I'd only worked, my sort of tagline was that I'd only worked on campaigns that lost. I'd only worked for progressive black women challengers and we lost all the time. I worked for Jay Travis in 2014. Um, she ran on the South side against, um, you know, a pension cutting stand for children dude named Christian Mitchell. For a state legislative seat, mm-hmm. right? For a state legislative seat. Yep. And I worked for Karen's exploratory committee where, yeah, you did see that kind of like electricity. Like I remember folks coming into the office. Um, they just made like bootleg t-shirts saying run Karen run and they were selling them on 87th street. And then I worked for Tara stamps on the West side and we lost and you know it took and it cost a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of resources to lose and i think we finally you know in 20 in the 2018 primaries we elected brandon johnson who's a ctu member you know worked at the chicago teachers union um he beat a county commissioner on the west side um and that was huge for us in terms of um electing like a, you know, a black spokesperson with good politics who comes from the rank and file of, um, you know, sort of the most militant labor union in the, in Chicago to perhaps, you know, <laughs> perhaps the country. And it costs like three quarters of a million dollars. Right. And so there's this, there's a tremendous, tremendous amount of work that has to be done, I think, to figure out how can we, one, how do we sort of win at scale? Um, and then two, I think, it's the responsibility that comes with governing, right? Like, I think that's that's what I feel like is like keeping me up at night is, you know, we can tweet, but can we govern? We're going to elect this caucus of city council members. We're going to have a new mayor who's got like the 100 day plan to put in people's hands when they're like the day after they're inaugurated. Like, I think I think we can do it. <laughs> we can like, get our act to do it. But like, I don't have it ready right now. You know, well, I think that's the role of uh, social movements is really laying out what are the uh, demands that we want to see and what are what are the actual legislative um, ways to get that done. Mm -hmm. And one one clear thing that organizations have been very focused on is a civilian police accountability council, which is called CPAC. And it would be a way to reform the Chicago Police Department to allow there to be actual democratic oversight. And that's something that's been pushed for for years. But as now, finally, I think in this last round, there were over 80 people that were supporting it, Um, some of them running in the same wards, obviously, but uh, overall in candidates. That's a whole shift from where the center of politics around the issue of policing was back in 2015. And that's one example, I think, of the type of policy we could see being pursued um, by a caucus of more left uh, candidates in the city council. Yeah. I mean, I just to clarify, I think that we can. I certainly believe that we have to try. And like the responsibility of that, I think, needs to weigh like extremely heavily on us, right? Like in the 20th Ward, I was talking to an elderly woman. Um, she owned her home, but she wasn't able to pay her gas bill and her heat got caught up, cut off in the middle of what was a brutally cold winter in Chicago. And because her heat was off, her pipes froze. And so she's a black elder on the south side in the middle of Chicago winter with no heat and no water. What is the left's responsibility to her? So you all are gesturing at 
some specific questions about policy, but I guess I want to ask big picture, what is the best case scenario for the Chicago left to come out of this election after the April runoffs? I mean, there are a bunch of races that we've talked about. We, we The left wants to see those people win, obviously. Uh, but even if all of the socialists and all of the other progressive candidates do win their runoffs, they'll still be in a minority on the city council. So what is the ideal outcome? I mean, is there a local scenario, for example, where we could have something like what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is doing in the House, where you know she is obviously just numerically very much in the minority, but she has used her bully pulpit very effectively to really set the political debate, set the terms of the political debate for the entire country right now. So is there a way that these new left elected officials could do something similar to that in city council or what are the other things that would be the best case scenario to come out of this election? Yeah, I think the bully pulpit is a great point. Um, I definitely think that we'll have more folks after April who are able to, uh, again, kind of stake out the North star politics that we should be striving for and in, in raising both like raising expectations, folks expectations that those things are possible and increasing the belief that, not only are they possible, but they are worth doing the hard work of politics to actually make real. Right. Um, and so, and that's not just, I think a discourse that happens like in interviews or in Twitter or whatever, but that's actually the work of community meetings and of recruiting people who live in, you know, working class wards of color that you are, or districts of color that you represent of having those community meetings that recruit people both to, that sort of ideological vision into those North star politics um, and also recruit people to like the organization that's going to make it real. Yeah. I think that's, that's very right. The AOC comparison I think is apt because what we've already seen in just having um, Carlos Rosa on the council as a, not just a DSA member, but a really outspoken young left voice who is willing to take risks. For example, there was a, big controversy over this uh, police academy that Rahm Emanuel is trying to build and wants $95 million to do so. Uh, he helped spearhead the legislative opposition to that plan, um, but he did that because that was the demand of a lot of social movement groups around that. And initially, he was the only voice. And I think yesterday, they did another vote on it, and it was five or eight people that uh, that ended up voting against it. So that's the type of leadership, I think, that we should expect to see from this new class of left uh, city council members who we're going to see come into office in April and a group of even, you know, five or six of them can, I think, can have a huge outsized impact in terms of setting the agenda for what we want to see in the city and calling out the type of politics as usual, corporate minded BS that has dominated the council and city hall for so long. I mean, just having a number of aldermen you know, they don't have to, it doesn't have to all take place on Twitter. It can go on in the halls of city council and at, you know, community meetings and press conferences and say, hey, we're not going to be giving huge tax breaks to groups like the Mercantile Exchange while we're also raising property taxes on poor families uh, across the city. Like, that's not a way to have a sustainable city for a working class residency. We need to change our priorities. And that's the opportunity that I think is presented by. Uh, what's coming up on April 2nd. Yeah, I think that there's, like what you said, Miles, there's like there's the ideological work that we're going to need folks to do. There's the organizing work that we need folks to do in terms of 
bringing their people along with them. Um, and then there's, you know, frankly, the fundraising work that we need folks to do. I'm heartened by the way in which, um, you know, sort of UWF members and UWF nurse candidates have been fundraising for each other, like state representative Delia, Delia Ramirez, whose campaign we managed in the 2018 state representative primaries, raised over, you know, $10,000 for Jeanette Taylor on the South side. And that that kind of like, outlay of resources um, between folks at different levels of government um, from different parts of the city, Black and Latinx folks is something that is unprecedented. And I think, again, we have we have yet to see sort of how high that ceiling might actually be. And I'm really excited about it. That being said, I also think that part of the work of this next city council, you know, to the point that you very rightly made at the beginning, Miles, about um, the, the actual like profound ways in which we are in crisis in Chicago. I, I think that there is like some triaging that we need to do as well to ensure that over the next four to eight years, um, we don't, Chicago does not lose so many working class, black, specifically black, but also like Latinx people. So as to make our ability to win governing power, like essentially too late for all the folks who've moved back to Mississippi or the South suburbs. Well, the the threat is that Chicago becomes the next kind of San Francisco That's or right. Seattle or something where it's really inaccessible for working class people to live here. And as you mentioned, Emma, like we, that rents are generally affordable compared to other major cities here right now, which is what allowed has allowed there to be this thriving um, diversity of cultures and um, backgrounds in the city. And that's what we're at fear of losing if we continue to see uh, corporate dominated politics run the table at the uh, when it comes to government. And that's the same People don't. People in Chicago don't want to see that. The people that want to see that are the ones that are going to make money off of the luxury developments, off of the entertainment that will come along with it, and that's what we have to. Uh, that's what I think the progressive groups across the city are going to have to uh, account for: is that this is a very different vision for the city, is what uh, different corporate interests have in mind. And there's examples like this Lincoln Yards project that is uh, being debated right now in city council, plenty of other. Uh, Lincoln Yards would be uh, basically a new downtown that they would build on the new north side along the riverfront, and it would just be these glitzy, gleaming towers meant for rich people, um, and just plop it right in the middle of a few uh, neighborhoods, and it would largely be inaccessible, of course, and not meant for poor working class residents. While we're seeing so many neighborhoods starved of resources, I mean, we have so many food deserts in the city of Chicago where we people can't even afford or can't find fresh groceries. And at the same time, we're building more glitzy towers. So I think that's the example of the type of contrast we're seeing in terms of the vision for the city uh, of the future in Chicago. No matter what happens in the runoffs, though, we can all sleep well at night knowing that Rahm Emanuel is on his way out as mayor of the city. So even the worst case scenario is a worst case scenario that does not involve Rahm Emanuel as the head of allowing corporations to suck the city dry like a vampire. So we got we got that going for us. We do have that going for us. There's I I gotta think you know at some he he can't be happy with what's going on here. There's no way that this was in even if you know Ram was playing some twelve dimensional chess and had some grand schemes all at the beginning. He cannot be happy about the fact that I don't know what you're talking about. He said he wanted to spend more time with his family. Well, yeah. I, 
even if we take him at his word on that, the fact that there's, you know, potentially five or six socialists that are going to be on the city council is not exactly the type of political vision that Rahm Emanuel has spent his career building. It's pretty much the exact opposite. So it's, if anything, this has just been a massive repudiation of the type of corporate friendly politics he's tried to shove down our throats for uh, the past eight years. I feel like he's probably going to be fine. <laughs> um, I'm not worried about you know, that. I'm not worried about Rom's future. He's, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's got some stacks he's sitting on. Well, Emma Ty and Miles Kampflasson, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Micah Utrecht is Jacobin's managing editor and the author of Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity, from Verso Books. Miles Kampflassen is the web editor of In These Times, and Emma Tai is the executive director of United Working Families. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said in an interview with the Chicago Tribune, and yes, this actually happened, in America, the need of an independent working men's party has been made manifest they can no longer trust politicians. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. Weeks like this, twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Thanks to Sarah Hurd for recording from Chicago. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Hold up. 